Good morning. Good to see everybody. As Joseph, I think, kind of alluded to, summer's kind of coming to an end, and most people have their vacations in. And most of you know, a few weeks ago, I was on vacation, and you know, sometimes when you're on vacation, you kind of have the time to to maybe do some things that you normally don't have time to do. And just to kind of, because this is germane to the story I'm about to tell, my go-to fitness routines are bicycling and resistance training. So I have this friend who has just bought a brand new road bike. And I mean, it is top of the line. Everything about it was, was custom made, custom built, custom paint job. It's a carbon fiber, which makes it extremely light. And it just has all these different cool features. For instance, I know a lot of you aren't necessarily bicycle people, but I think you'd appreciate this. It has a radar on it. And the way the radar works is kind of mounted on the handlebars. It's about half the size of a cell phone. And when people are coming up behind you, it picks it up and you can see where you're at and where the car or the bicycle or whatever that's coming up behind you is. And the closer they get, the lights on the back of the bikes start flashing intermittently and you can tell exactly where they are till they go around you. I mean, that's like a really cool safety feature. And the same computer that does that also, like if your bike just stops abruptly, like you had an accident, if you don't actually turn it off in 45 seconds, it'll, or you can set it for different times, but it will call 911 and also call whoever else you designate. So it's just a super cool bike, and uh, I'm guessing, I don't know for sure because I don't want to ask him, but I'm guessing he probably paid five figures for this bike. I mean, it is just super, super nice and good for him. So my bike <laughs> is 21 years old. It's not carbon fiber, it's aluminum. It was a nice bike in its day, and, it, and it's still fine. I don't need a new bike, and uh, some of those updated features would be nice, but, uh, and certainly, I don't have five figures to spend on a bike. I know you're kind of surprised by that, right? But it, it's, it's true. Well, so on vacation, one evening, this is where the park comes in, you can do stuff you don't normally do. I was just sitting around, that just hardly ever happens when I'm at home, and I thought, I'm just gonna get on Craigslist and see what a good used road bike would sell for. And understand, you know, bikes are different. These are not like bikes you buy at Walmart or, or the Academy or something like that. They're, you know, when they're used a lot and stuff, the materials and all that, they're, they're just different. It's like the difference in driving a cheap car and a more expensive car, or playing a Walmart guitar up here on stage versus playing a Gibson guitar. There's a difference. So anyway, I get on there and I start looking around and then there's this one that catches my attention, this listing. It's a 2012 Trek model, and it says it's brand new. I'm like, well, how can it be a 2012 model and be brand new? So I go on the listing and start reading the details, and, and, and this is what it says. This is what the guy said that's selling it. He said in 2012, he bought the, there was two of them, one, he and his wife, they, they bought his and her bikes, and uh, he brought it home that day, and he rode it around in the neighborhood about a mile. That's what it said. It said it had been used for one mile. And then he began to have some health issues that have lasted for over the last seven years. He's now 70 years old, and he realizes that he's never going to ride that bike. And uh, I thought, wow. And so uh, I was just curious, so I checked to see what the bike sold for. Knew it was listed for, he was asking $1,500. 
and he was asked a piece, and uh, they listed for $3,600 a piece when they're new. So a great deal, not a great deal for me, but a great deal for somebody. And, uh, but it got me thinking, how many people buy exercise equipment and then just really never use it? Because when you go to Craigslist and those similar kind of sites, there is all types of exercise equipment on there. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do a little confession, okay? All right? Confession is good for the soul, right? So here's what I want to do. Here's the question. Be honest. How many of you have ever used a piece of exercise equipment to hang an article of clothing on? Come on, let's be honest, the elliptical bike, the treadmill, the, the weight bench, yeah, right? I mean, like, all of us have probably done that at one point. Maybe it doesn't quite look like the picture, but uh, I'm guessing you've probably done something like that. Are you familiar with the term gently used? You know, something that like almost new, if you can throw that logo up there. So I got online, I was looking around for gently used logos, and I, I found that one, and then I found this other logo. If you'll put that up there, the next one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that got my curiosity, I have to tell you. So I clicked on it to see what that was all about, and apparently it's a company that does organic diapers, and you rent them and that kind of stuff, and I'm assuming they're clean and all that stuff when you get them. But uh, anyway, it just, it just kind of tickled me. But, but gently used, we used to just say things were new. But now we say things are gently used, and that means like they were hardly used at all, kind of like that, that bike I was telling you about. And you know the best gently used deals that you can find on Craigslist a lot of times are used fitness equipment, gently used fitness equipment. I mean, you can save hundreds and thousands of dollars on all this gently used fitness equipment. And uh, I think everybody's probably purchased something at some time or another that, that, that maybe you didn't use and, and maybe eventually you get rid of it. And uh, just, just that gently used stuff. And probably some of you have sold fitness equipment that the only thing that ever was used for was your kids were hanging on it and you had to dust the footprints off of it or fingerprints off of it before you sold it or the spider webs or whatever. And the interesting thing to me about gently used fitness equipment, consumer grade fitness equipment. That most of us, when we buy it, and probably most of us have been consumers, when we buy it, we believe in exercise. We believe in fitness. We believe in getting our cardio in and some of us believe that some weight loss would be good for us, and we believe in nutrition, and we believe in the power of exercise to get rid of stress. We believe all that. But the reason there is so much gently used exercise equipment out there to purchase is because we believe it, we believe in exercise, but we don't act. We don't actually do the exercise. Oftentimes in the world of exercise equipment, people don't act on what they believe. You know, at the end of the day, when it comes to exercise equipment, it makes absolutely no sense at all to own it and not use it, and it doesn't do you any good at all. 
And the thing is, when it comes to fitness, most of us kind of believe the same thing, don't we? We believe that, that the cardio is good for you. We believe that fitness is good for you. We believe that, that watching what you eat is good for you. We believe that watching your weight is good for you. We believe that having checkups, that's good. We all believe the same thing, but believing doesn't make any difference. Doesn't make any difference. What makes a difference? Doing. Doing makes a difference. A couple other thoughts here about fitness. More confession, okay? How many of you have ever exercised when you had a bad attitude? Like, like that's me for sure. Like, you just had a bad attitude, right? I mean, you know, somebody got on your nerves at work that day, you got to bed too late, you're, you're sleepy or whatever, and you just have a bad attitude. And you exercise anyway, which means it's still good for you, even though you really didn't want to do it. In fact, I heard this. I don't know if this is true, but I heard this one time. When you exercise when you don't want to, it's when it does the most good for you. That's what I heard. Some of you think, wow, I get a lot of good exercise, right? <laughs> but that, I, I've heard that. Like I said, I don't, I don't know if it's true. But it's the doing that makes a difference. And here's one other thing about, about exercise, and we're going to kind of move along here. Having a partner makes a big difference. Having somebody there to, that kind of holds you accountable, that you can work out with, that, that kind of gets you to show up, makes a difference. And some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe you used to be an avid exerciser and your schedule changed, your gym closed, your partner moved away, whatever it was, and your intensity and your frequency has just got lower and lower and you just don't do it like you used to because accountability makes a difference. Usually... My time for, for exercise is about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I actually keep my bike in my office here and head out for a while or whatever I'm going to do that day. Usually, you know, late afternoon, early evening is when I do it. And, uh, but as I've gotten older, I can do the same exercise and then it doesn't work as well. You can tell by looking at me. It just, it just doesn't. The metabolism slows down, so I've tried to increase and watch what I eat and that kind of stuff more. And uh, so I decided I need to start riding on Saturdays, too. And uh, if I'm going to ride on Saturdays, 4 o'clock in the afternoon is a terrible time to ride. You know, it interrupts family time, interrupts the whole day. So I need to ride in the morning. And just I just hate getting up early to come up here and ride a bicycle and that kind of thing. So I started riding with other people on Saturdays. It makes all the difference in the world when you know that somebody is waiting for you. So accountability makes all the difference. Acting. Make, on what you believe makes all the difference. Now, we're in church this morning, right? And I know you're thinking, okay, that's a nice little lecture you gave us on fitness and accountability, but where are we going with this? Well, acting on what you believe and having accountability in your Christian walk, it makes a huge difference in being a disciple for Jesus Christ. All Christians believe. That's why when you go into the New Testament, and it's why we call each other believers and why the New Testament calls us believers. But lots of Christian believers do not act on what they believe. I mean, let's face it. We all would say, yeah, I believe in the teachings of Jesus Christ. And then we would have to answer some questions. Well, well do you always forgive people like Jesus taught? Do you always love your enemies like Jesus taught? Do you always, are you always unselfish? Do you always practice New Testament 
generosity. Jesus talks very explicitly about, about being baptized, and yet many people never get baptized. So we know what Jesus taught, and we say we believe it, but we don't act on it. It's just kind of like fitness. Folks, God doesn't just want us to believe. He wants us to follow. And following Jesus and acting upon the teachings of the Bible is what really transfer, transforms your life. And here's the deal. This is where we're going today. You don't follow Jesus in isolation. You don't do it solo. You can't follow him by yourself. It's not a me thing. It's a we thing. So we're going to look at some words that were most likely penned by Paul. And if you remember Paul, he was this guy that hated Christians. His initial job, what he thought was his life's work, was going to be to put Christians out of business. And then God gets a hold of his heart, and he becomes a believer, and God totally changes him. And then his business becomes planting churches all over the Mediterranean basin. And, of course, Paul wrote a huge portion of the New Testament. And if you were kind of to compile... Like a lot of teachings of the 12 or 13 books that Paul wrote, you'll notice that he's very much about relationships. Again, it's not just a me thing, it's a we thing. And listen to just kind of the compilations of the, some things where he's talking about relationships. This one another kind of thing. Forgive one another. Accept one another. Care for one another. Encourage one another. Submit to one another, restore one another, carry one another, bear one another. This is all relational things. This is all stuff that has to do with other people. You know, sometimes I think we get the impression, you know, well, well being a follower of Jesus Christ means I pray, I read my Bible, I, I don't, be, you know, don't be mean to people, and put some money in the offering plate when it comes by. And we have this very vertical kind of idea of what our relationship with God is. And that's important. And it's important to have that vertical relationship with God. But that's not all there is. There's also a horizontal aspect to it that Jesus taught and the New Testament teaches. Here's kind of the way I was taught. And I bet some of you were taught this way too. Growing up, I was taught this very vertical relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, you need to read your Bible. You need to tithe, memorize some scripture. And there's all these rules that you need to follow. And the more that you follow those rules, the better you and God are. So if I do all this stuff, God and I, we're good, right? And there was nothing about the horizontal, the people, and all that kind of stuff. It was this kind of vertical thing. And again, the vertical part's important, but that's not all there is. Because when, when you just have the vertical, you become legalistic, you become judgmental, you become harsh, you become self-righteous. And those principles are good. There's more to the Christian walk than those things. So we're going to go to the book of Hebrews. We're not positive that Paul wrote Hebrews, but a lot of people, they think he did, and I kind of think he did. And so that's where we're going to kind of land it this morning. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 10. And uh, all the scriptures, of course, will be on the screen, or you can follow along in your own Bible. And there's just kind of two points this morning. And as we look at this, I want you to notice on these two points that Paul kind of pivots. 
He talks about our vertical relationship with Jesus Christ. That's his first point. And then he just kind of makes this pivot and talks about our horizontal relationship with Christ. So we're just going to kind of look and just kind of see how he explains that. So first, our vertical relationship beginning in verse 19. The first thing you notice, he says, therefore. Now, whenever you see a therefore, it's connecting something else. Something else has been said, therefore. So what he's saying is the things that I have mentioned to you earlier in this chapter where I've been talking about Jesus Christ and him dying for our sins and those types of things, I'm connecting back to that. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Let me just give you a little bit of background. Paul is writing to Jewish Christians. The book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians. You say, well, why is that significant? Well, because these Jewish Christians used to practice Old Testament law. And in Old Testament law, the way you had eternal life is you made sacrifices and you went to the high priest who would make the sacrifices also for you. And that was how you achieved eternal life. So when he starts talking here, you're viewing this through the lens of a Jewish believer. And it gives you a little more insight of what he is saying here. He says that we have confidence to enter the most holy place. So he's going to, this, this concept that you can, what he's going to talk about, that you can come to God through Jesus Christ is revolutionary. I mean, that, that's just unheard of to these Jewish believers. You just couldn't do that. You always had to go through the priest and the sacrifices. And some of them, even though they were believers and accepted Christ, they still thought they had to offer the sacrifices and have the priest and things do things for them. And he uses that word holy place here. And he's referring to the holy of holies in the temple or in the tabernacle. And the holy of holies is where the high priest would go in and he would make sacrifices on behalf of the people of Israel. And that would give, forgive them of their sins and give them eternal life. They would have understood exactly what he was talking about when he said the holy of holies. And, and the, only the high priest could go there. If anybody else went, you know what happened? They'd be struck dead. And here's something, I don't know if you know this. The high priest, when he would go in there, they would tie a rope on his ankle so that if he had a heart attack or God struck him dead or whatever, they could pull him out. Because otherwise, there was, nobody else could go in and get him. And so they would totally understand this, this holy of holies thing. And Paul's saying, but now you are Jesus' father. You don't need the sacrifices anymore. You have direct access to God. And so he continues in verse 20. By a new and living way. He said there's this new way now. And it's not priests and high and sacrifices and holy of holies. It's Jesus Christ. And the way has been opened up through the curtain. There used to be a curtain that separated the holy of holies there. And he says that is his body. So the new way is Christ. You don't need that other stuff anymore. And he mentions that curtain. And then he goes on in verses 21 and 22, and he kind of elaborates on it and gives some more detail and says that they have full assurance, that they have full confidence that, that they have this vertical relationship with Jesus Christ. And that vertical relationship is important. That believing in Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins, that's, that's the most important decision you'll ever make. It's important. 
he pivots. In this next verse, he pivots from the vertical to the horizontal. And this is what he says as he begins to talk about the second point this morning, our horizontal relationship with one another. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 says this. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Why don't you look at that one word up there that just kind of gets my attention. And if you're following along here, you probably notice it too. What does unswervingly mean? Who uses that word anymore, right? Kind of got my attention when I was reading this. Unswervingly means not to waver. It means not to be wishy-washy. It means not to just kind of blow with the wind, so to speak. It needs to be. It means to be firm. That, that's what it means. And so he's kind of talking here. What he's saying, he, kind of like an eye to the sky, vertical view here. He says you have this relationship with God where you don't need the high priest. You don't need the temple. You don't need to make sacrifices anymore. You have Jesus Christ. But pay attention to this. He actually used in the earlier verses there. Let us consider. Think about this. This vertical stuff is very private. But he said the horizontal stuff, it's important too. It's the other part. And so it's like they have this sky look, but he's kind of bringing them back down to earth. And notice what he says in verse 24. Let us consider that word I was just talking about. How we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. He said this is important. Let us consider. I want you to think about this. Think carefully about this. And then the word he uses is spur one another is his phrase. Here's what he's doing here. This vertical thing is kind of intangible, right? But the horizontal thing is very tangible. So he's shifting gears. He's making that pivot. And he uses the word spur. This is, this is kind of a, a key to this whole thing that he's talking about. The word spur is kind of talking about our relationship with other believers, whether they're at the church or just other people who are doing their best to follow Jesus Christ. And this word spur has an a, a element to it of encouraging each other and giving each other access to your lives. And it means to, to, to get attention, so to speak. It means a little bit of stirring up and provoking. So think about this. Growing up in West Texas, I went to a lot of rodeos. I mean, every little town has a rodeo out in West Texas. And our high schools had rodeo teams. And think about spurs. And I've seen plenty of spurs and stuff like that. And when you spur a horse, what are you doing? Kind of provoking it a little bit, right? You're kind of getting its attention. You're encouraging it to move a little bit faster or whatever it is that you want that horse to do. You're not really hurting it per se. It doesn't really hurt them. But you're encouraging it. You're getting their attention. You're, you're, you're getting it to do what you want it to do. So Paul's making that tie-in to Christianity. That we as believers need to be spurring each other and encouraging each other on. Even using the word provoking each other on. We need to be giving each other's attention, so to speak. It means when, when, when you're in a community of believers, a, a smaller group, not necessarily a group as big as this auditorium, but that you have permission to speak into a friend's life when you see them going the wrong direction. It means when you see a couple that's struggling, you have permission 
to kind of, in a very positive way, speak into their lives. I'm talking about smaller groups now, not just random people. That you have permission when, when a child is struggling, maybe to help those parents or to help the, that child. That's what he's talking about here. And those kind of things take place in smaller groups, not in big auditoriums like that. The vertical thing is great, he says, but you also need the horizontal. It's absolutely critical. You need one another. And what does he say spur on to? Toward love and good deeds. This is belief, believe, follow, and act. It's putting belief into action. It's getting on the elliptical instead of it just collecting dust in the corner. It's getting on the treadmill instead of it just sitting in the middle of the den with clothes hanging on it. It's getting on the weight bench so it just doesn't collect spider webs. It's practicing. It's doing the faith. Owning and believing exercise doesn't make any difference in your life at all. He says he wants us to do. We can have a clear conscience. He says you have the assurance. You have the confidence. But now you need to act upon it. And folks, really, the chances are pretty good that if you don't have people spurring you on and encouraging you, that you're probably not doing that great in the Christian walk. Probably not forgiving people like you should. And we all tend to be selfish so on and so forth. We don't want to apologize when we've done somebody wrong. And that's why you need people that can speak into your lives. And then in verse 25, he kind of really gets up in our business. He says, giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. You know, when I was growing up, this verse was oftentimes used to encourage people to come to church, and I certainly think it has that application. But I also think it has a deeper application because of what is tied into it before. Because when you talk about spurring on, that, that whole concept, it's going to church, but it's also talking, the application, I believe, is smaller groups too. Because that's where the spurring on happens. That's when you really encourage each other. That's when you get permission to speak into people's lives. So he's addressing those that just want to do vertical and, and, and just don't want to be accountable to anybody else and just kind of want to be the Lone Ranger. It's me and God and nobody else. And Paul says, no, it's not. There's a direct connection between faith and community. You could say God designed for faith and community to go together. Some of you probably know this to be true from personal experience. If you would tell your story, maybe it went something like this. You used to be involved in church, and, and then somebody got on your nerves, or, or maybe you moved, schedule changes, or whatever, and, and you just kind of started dropping out. Attendance became less and less frequent. And, you know, at first you're like, well, you know, I'll watch the TV preacher, I'll watch it on YouTube, I'll keep reading my Bible. And then before you know it, you're not hardly watching them anymore on TV or the YouTube, and you're, and, and you're not really reading your Bible. And then pretty soon you're just totally out. You just totally isolated yourself. And I've noticed this too. I've been doing this a long time. 
When people, when their faith begins to slide, almost always one of the first things that they do is they drop out of their small group. That small community of believers. That's usually the first place. That's the first step. And then eventually they quit coming to worship and everything else. So being a true disciple means being involved in the lives of other Christians and then being involved in your life. Think about this. After Jesus died, Paul many times refers to us as Christ's body. Not me. We are referred to as Christ's body. Not Dennis, not Bart, not Bert, not Cindy, not Sharon, not Susie. We are referred as the body of Christ. So it's not a me thing. It's a one another thing. They are the body of Christ. And you remember when Jesus told the parable and he told them they needed to, 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 to clothe the naked and feed the poor and all those types of things and the disciples just kind of weren't getting it and Jesus kind of told them when you do this to them it's like you're doing it to me. And then it kind of clicked the light bulb in their head, you know, kind of went off. And basically, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but they said, so the way we treat other people is an indicator of how much we love you? And Jesus said, exactly. Because it has to do with one another. And the moral of the story is if you tend to isolate yourself from other believers, eventually you can very well isolate yourself from your father. And some of you have experienced that, too. You, you, you came to church, and you never really got involved in a smaller group, and you never really connected with anybody, and you just felt isolated, and, and, and you finally just kind of gave up. We are made to do faith in community. You see, you see other people differently when you begin to hear their stories. Because I think we all have this tendency. Tell me if I'm wrong. We tend to think that we are better than other people because we haven't taken the time to hear the stories of those people that we think are better than. Am I right? We tend to think that we are better than other people because we haven't taken the time of those people that we think we're better than to hear their stories. You see, when you get into community and you start sharing stories, things begin to change. <laughs> Because by the way, I think we all, we're not going to say this, but we have this idea that if everybody was just like me, the world would be a better place, right? And you know how I come when I think you, that you think that? Well, let's just say I might meet somebody that thought like that. Right? But when you get into a community, what happens? You begin to hear their stories. And, and if you're emotionally dialed in at all, this is what happens. Oh, boy, if I'd have had that experience growing up, I might be like that too. If my parents had done that to me when I was growing up, I might be like that too. If I'd had that, whatever, I'd be just like you are. And all at once, it totally changes us. And it changes the way we interact with people. It changes the way we see other people. And hearing other people's stories, it brings us together. That's what community is. That's what happened in the first century. Men and women and children and slaves and slave owners and poor and rich and free people all came together. That was very unusual back then. It would be very unusual today. 
They all came together in these small ecclesias, these small gatherings. And you know what they had in common? Not rank, not social status, not money, not power. And Jesus in common. And that's what happens when you meet in community and you meet together. And that's why Paul's saying, I cannot believe that you guys are forsaking the meeting of yourself together. And he goes on in verse 25. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. You need to be encouraging each other. He's spurring each other on. So let's kind of talk a little bit of application this morning. School year's kind of coming up quickly. Summer's kind of over in a lot of ways. This is like a, you know, it's always kind of like a new start when the school year starts. And uh, here's kind of my application question for you. Is anyone outside your family spurring you on to live your faith? Anybody? Spurring on, not your family, but somebody outside. Is there a group? Is there someone encouraging you maybe even when you don't think that you need to be encouraged? Is there someone that has permission to speak into your life? Is there a context or a setting where people can speak into your life where you are held accountable? A couple other questions to go with this. Have you given up being in a, in a small group or a small community? Or maybe I'll ask another question like this. Have you ever been in a small group at a church setting? Have you ever done that? Or has your Christian experience always kind of been sitting in a pew, sitting in robes, singing a few songs, watching somebody like me speak, putting some money in the offering plate, and that's the extent of your Christianity. Real community takes place in circles, not in rows. The extent of your interaction today is shaking people's hand, maybe some conversations when you leave today. That's great. But you're not going to interact in a, in, in, a, in a significant way. You're not going to interact with God's Word in a significant way when you're sitting in rows. I mean, you're, 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 you're looking at me. You're looking at the back of somebody's head. You're thinking, my, they're really losing their hair quicker than I thought. Or how'd they get that scar? I wonder how that happened. Or if you're looking at the back of my head, boy, he's really starting to get gray. You're having those kind of thoughts. You're having no interaction with Scripture. What happens in circles, what happens in small groups in the church can't happen in rows. It's where you get real with each other. It's where you hear each other's stories. It's where you interact with Scripture. You know, in, in, a, in, in, in our home groups, they're actually discussing the Sunday morning sermon, and they're interacting with that, and you're hearing other people's thoughts and the way God is working in their lives, and you're hearing their stories. And then in our Sunday school classes, they're using different types of Scripture, and, and, but it's still, it's, it's interaction. And then on Wednesday nights, the men's groups, men's fraternity, and Mosaic, the ladies' groups, they're looking at scriptures, and they're interacting with their own gender, and they're finding, boy, I'm not the only guy that's thought this. I'm not the only guy that, that might, might have a, a little bit of an issue here, struggling a little bit raising kids. And, and moms are doing their thing in Mosaic and sharing stories and finding out that they're, they're not the Lone Ranger. That doesn't happen in this room. 
It happens in the small groups, and that's why Paul talks so much about one another. Yes, vertical is important, but horizontal, one another, is so important. Now, some of you are thinking, well, Pastor, I just don't have time for small groups. I get that. But you probably didn't have time for exercising. <coughs> But you prioritized it. And you made the time. And maybe you gave up some things. You're going, hey, Pastor, I don't do exercise either. But you know, and I know, that you would be a better person if you did exercise. And the same thing of small groups. Your life would be changed. Your spiritual life and just your life would be changed if you were involved in a small group. And think about this. Let's, let's, let's go back to the exercise thing. Let's just say 12 months you hadn't exercised. <clears throat> Whatever it is you spent your time doing that you could have been exercising, what do you have to show for it? I'm guessing, in a lot of cases, nothing. You probably can't even remember. I'm saying that's always the case, but probably. The same thing about small groups. Not going to a small group, what do you have that's significant to show for that time that you would spend in a small group. <coughs> in a lot of cases, it's probably not something very significant. I just want to encourage you today. It's so biblical. Get involved in a small group. We're actually changing the, the nomenclature a little bit here. We're going to start referring to them as connect groups, kind of umbrella everything together. Sunday school, home groups, and our Wednesday night stuff, it'll all be just connect groups, because that's what we're wanting to do. We're wanting to connect you with each other, and then we're wanting to connect you with Jesus Christ. And it's all about discipleship and your walk with Christ. So after the services this morning, we're having the ministry fair, and it's over in, in, in the V3 auditorium. And I just want to encourage you to go over there. If you're not in a small group of any kind, Talk to some folks over there. There'll be folk, folks at the different tables representing different ministries. You can go over there and talk to them, find out when they meet, what they do. You can sign up if you want, or you can just get information, or you can just talk to people. There'll also be people over there if you're interested. Part of this is engaging, you know, being a volunteer too, serving, and those types of things. All the ministries will be represented over there if God's been talking to you about maybe getting a little more involved, because that is so important. Uh, there'll be folks over there who can share with you about their ministry and and you can ask questions and those things. And there's no pressure. Nobody's forcing you to sign anything today. You can just go over there and collect information. If you're already involved in a small group, already in a ministry that you really love, go over there anyway. Just browse around. Maybe you can encourage some other people. Maybe just see some of the ministries like, oh, I didn't know Bernie Bush did that. And uh, just kind of find out about some of the other things and maybe even encourage folks over there that are, are doing those ministries and let them know that you appreciate them. Would you pray with me, please?